Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Jennifer Skeen. In late 2019, amidst record-setting heat waves and droughts, bushfires swept across the Australian continent. The severity and scale of destruction wrought by these black summer blazes was unprecedented, burning more than 40 million acres of land, releasing over 700 million tons of carbon dioxide, and killing an estimated 3 billion animals. Amid the smoke and devastation, one animal in particular became the face of the fire's toll, a face almost synonymous with Australia itself, the koala. The fires killed and injured more than 60,000 koalas and incinerated the highly flammable eucalyptus forests on which koalas depend, leaving the species already beleaguered by habitat loss, infectious disease, and myriad other threats even more at risk. Koalas, masters of sending their throaty, guttural bellows across long distances, soon became messengers to the world about the devastation that our actions are bringing to many other species. Heartbreaking images and videos of the large-nosed, fluffy-eared marsupials went viral around the world. Koalas sitting in laundry baskets and rehab centers with singed fur and burned paws. Koalas cowering and silhouetted in burning trees against apocalyptic orange backdrops. Koalas sipping from the water bottles offered by firemen and Good Samaritans. Koalas evince both the toll of climate destruction, but also humans' capacity for action and compassion for non-human animals. Yet as our guest today has written, for as visible as they are and how much they have to teach us about ourselves and our world, there's so much we don't know about these unique, often misunderstood creatures. Who are these imperiled, marvelous, eucalyptus-munching animals that captured the hearts of people across the planet? How do they experience the world? Where did they come from? What does their future hold? How is such a recognizable species still such an enigma? How can we better protect them and the habitats upon which they depend? Our guest, Dr. Danielle Claude, an Australian biologist at Flinders University in Adelaide, spent years delving into these questions in a quest to better understand these lone survivors of a once diverse family of Australian marsupials. Her new book, Koala, A Natural History and Uncertain Future, delves into koala's ancient ancestors, evolution, biology, ecology, relationship with humans, and their uncertain fate. She joins us from Adelaide Hills in South Australia. Danielle Claude, welcome. Thank you for having me. Danielle, the, the title of your, your really fabulous and uh, riveting new book is Koalas, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. And you, you spend a lot of the beginning of the book talking about the really fascinating uh, evolution of the koala and the fact that, you know, today they are sort of unique um, in, in as a species of, of marsupial, but they used to share a number of common ancestors. Where did koalas come from and, and who were those ancestors? Yes, I, I did I did spend quite a bit of time with the, the natural history of the animals to start with because I really wanted to um, focus on the animal and not not 
so much focus on the social history, our human history of the animal. So I, did, I went right back to the beginning of where they came from because I thought that was important to know. Uh, to understand the animal fully is to, is to know its evolutionary origins and the, and the influences it's had. So, you know, koalas are part of the, the great marsupial group of animals that dominate the Australian mammalian system um, and make it so distinct from other parts of the world, which tend to be dominated by eutherians or placental mammals that most people are more familiar with. Um, and, and they're part of a, a really big family that does include you know, the kangaroos and all those sorts of things. But the, the various groups split off um, and we come down to the what's part of the vombatid family, which includes today the wombat, uh, the, three, the, the three or four species of wombats, and the koala, which is a solitary species. So, so it makes you think that there's not there's not much to them, and that they're they're two similar kind of animals, and that they're medium sized, stocky built animals. Wombats live underground, koalas live in trees. But if we look at the broader family, they're way more diverse. So we, you know, that then includes diprotodons, which were two or three ton uh, grazing herbivores, the the marsupial equivalent of a woolly mammoth. You know, we've got thylacoleos, um, which were predatory possums are the size of a panther that lived in trees. So it's a really amazing and diverse family. You describe in the book that koala fossils are very hard to find and that it's been quite a challenge, it sounds like, to sort of recreate this evolutionary history based on the fossil record. Um, why is that? And, and sort of what is, how did this knowledge of where koalas came from evolve over the last century or so? Yeah, Australia's got a really problematic fossil history in that we don't have the, the, the fantastic fossils preservation that other countries, you know, like, like China or North America have, where they've got really rich and very detailed fossil deposits. Um, and that's just due, just due to geological and environmental conditions here. It doesn't favour fossils. Um, and a lot of them have been eroded away. So, so we don't, we don't have as many, but the you know, so we tend to end up with little fragments, and for for koalas in particular, um, it's mostly teeth and jaw bones because they're the hardest part of the of this of this skeleton. Teeth are teeth are tougher than bone, so we tend to have lots of teeth. Um, unfortunately, koala teeth are really interesting, and and teeth are very good at distinguishing between species. They're very specific to species, so so that's helpful. Um, but it does make it difficult to to track, you know, exactly what the koalas were like. We know where they were and we know when they were and we know a bit about what they eat and how big they were and that's about the limit. So so we've reconstructed as much as we can. Fortunately, there's new fossils being found all the time, so we can be pretty hopeful that perhaps a, a better specimen of a koala will be found one day. Speaking of teeth and, and what koala koalas eat, the history of the koala is really uh, impossible to talk about without also talking about the history of eucalyptus, which is their almost exclusive food source. And you write about how eucalyptus is sort of an interesting food for the koala to have gravitated toward. Um, can you tell us about the eucalyptus and, and koala's relationship with it? Mm -hmm. Sure. So, so in the past, there have been many different species of koala, um, and they've occupied. They've always been seem to have been associated with forests. So they've always always been um, leaf eaters, if you like. But the pre, but the earlier species were not necessarily. They didn't have the same really. Um, the teeth of the modern koala suggest that they eat very tough leaves, um, 
that require a lot of a lot of chopping up and processing, which suggests that modern koalas perhaps adapted to eucalypts, whereas the the ones that have gone extinct were, use, were eating softer non-eucalypt leaves. So so when the other forest, the softer forests were more common, um, and eucalypts really came to the fore when Australia's climate started becoming very arid and dry. Um, and eucalypts are drought adapted trees, um, and they're they're thick, oily, oil coated leaves, waxy leaves, are a defence against drying out. So that's why they proliferated and the modern koala was the surviving species that proliferated along with them. You describe in the book how after Europeans first arrived in Australia in the late um, 1700s, it took a surprisingly long time, you know, more than 10 years for them to record these these animals in the in the eucalyptus trees above them and more than 30 years for them to be described scientifically. What explains that that delay? Yeah, look, that's a that's a big topic of debate amongst um, koala historians. Um, you know, there's been there's been discussion whether whether Europeans just so unobservant about Australian animals that they didn't notice the koalas, which is quite possible. Koalas are quite hard to see, um, you know, because they're little grey fluffy balls up in the top of very very tall trees, um, and they don't move around much. So they spend ninety five percent of their time asleep. So you know. Very often they're not moving and they are hard to see in the gum trees. But the one thing that you can you, makes you always aware that koalas are around is during the breeding season. They're very noisy. Mm. So I think the fact that the um, early colonists didn't notice koalas probably suggests they weren't in that area at the time. The koalas, populations of koalas do move um, and shift in abundance. And I suspect that they just weren't in that particular area, um, so they were just they were further away. So it wasn't until they sort of started exploring out further um, at the right time of year that they came across the koalas. But it was indigenous people who first taught um, European colonists about koalas, for sure. That that's very clear in the historical record that they're getting information from um, Aboriginal people about these animals. And, but, it, but it still doesn't explain why they weren't very interested in them. It does surprise me, you know, given, especially given how interested people are in koalas now. European scientists were fascinated by kangaroos and platypus and things like that, but they really weren't very taken with koalas. Um, I suspect that maybe has to do with they, – they certainly had the specimens going back to – going overseas and going to Europe in particular, but it was very hard to move living animals, whereas whereas kangaroos were transported to Europe quite early, relatively early. Um, but, you, you know, koalas, that's much harder to do. They don't survive the journey. Yeah, that was a fascinating fact in the book that you point out that even today, koalas are among the most expensive animals to keep in zoos for the specific reason that they require you know, plantations of eucalyptus to sustain them, which, uh, you know, obviously was much more difficult to do uh, centuries ago than than now. But that was just, uh, it never occurred to me that a koala would be more expensive to, you know, maintain than a lion or even than an elephant. 
Yeah, yeah, they're hugely expensive because they do. They they don't. It's not only that they require fresh food. We're, we're typically accustomed to feeding herbivores pellets in zoos, um, but you can't do that with a koala. They have to have fresh leaves, and they have to have specific fresh leaves. So, of the uh, you know nine hundred species of eucalypts that that we have in Australia, koalas eat up about seventy of them, um, and any one koala will only eat between three and ten species. And they're very particular about the individual tree they eat from and the particular time they eat it and the particular leaves they eat from that tree. Um, so it's really, really common to have a tree that they absolutely love and then one day they say, no, I don't want to eat that anymore. I want something different. Um, and you can't you can't tell whether that's just the koala being fussy or, or whether it's based in the nutritional value that they're getting out of that leaf, that so suddenly the leaves have become toxic or, or changed something's changed in the nutritional balance and they know they can't they can't keep eating that so yeah having koalas overseas is a big big job you've got to have really big plantations with a lot of diversity um, and that's one of the reasons why San Diego Zoo was one of the early successes in in keeping koalas because eucalypts had already populated that area they eucalypts had, had colonized um, San Diego streetscapes beforehand so they kind of had a had a um, head start on that. Yeah, I went to the San Diego Zoo a couple of years ago and I saw the the koalas there. And I, when I was there, I think I assumed that I had, of course, seen koalas in person elsewhere. But thinking back on it, I, given how few zoos actually are home to koalas now, I think you mentioned uh, around 10 or so in the U.S., uh, it is quite likely that that was probably the first encounter I had with koalas. Mm. Well, they're so visible. They're so visible. You know, culturally, their their image is everywhere. So, it, you know, we all know what they look like. <laughs> but uh, and they're very familiar from children's books and children's toys. So we grow up with koalas in a way. But it's very rare for people to see them. And even in Australia, on the east coast, most people haven't seen a koala in the wild. So the the only places you tend to see them in the wild is where they're very densely populated. For example, in the area I live, Adelaide Hills or Kangaroo Island uh, and places like that where there's a very dense population of koalas, then, then people see them commonly. But, yeah, it's pretty un- unusual. You know, speaking of how ubiquitous they are now, they, as Rebecca mentioned, that it took a very long time for the settlers to even notice their presence in Australia, or at least they were not uh, talking about them in the written record. Um, but then following that moment when colonists started to write about the koala, their history became sort of plagued with inaccurate descriptions, misconceptions, a lot of very denigrating comments about the koala, which is in such stark contrast to the beloved status that they they hold today. What was Europeans' response to the koala once they did take notice of it? And when did this change? Mm, mm. That's that's a that's a really interesting story, I think, and I I think you know. So in the the late um, 1800s and early 1900s, there was a lot of koala hunting going on. So um, there was very high international demand for fur of all kinds, and koalas were a fur. They have very thick, dense, waterproof fur, um, and so they were being hunted in the in the forests. Um, and there were millions of koala pelts, as well as possums and wombats and lots of other animals, going out to the European and American fur markets um, to the extent 
then that people were getting really worried about them going extinct. Um, and so that started a big public campaign. And, and a lot of that campaign, to be honest, the, the public face of that campaign, at least, was driven by um, children's writers, women women who were writing books for children. And they were really important in establishing and building popular attention for conservation causes um, in Australia, probably elsewhere. Um, so a very famous one in the 1930s was Blinky Bill, which, you know, you may be familiar with from the cartoon on, on children's television, which is, is pretty internationally distributed, I think. So so that's but that story was really prompted by um, the author wanting people to be aware of the dangers to koalas and the risks they faced um, and how we had to look after them and protect them. And I think that establishing that conservation message in young children really grew a generation of conservationists. So so I think children's writers and, and women in particular play a really important role in, in that conservation movement. You describe how even as this you know awareness was starting to rise and and you know much more so in the early 1900s, but in the late 1800s, so many pelts were being exported, uh, and that the and you also describe how the horrible methods by which these poor koalas were being killed, typically cyanide poison and traps and both you know long excruciating deaths, um, but that so, so much so that the hunting was causing populations to plummet as the fur was being sent to places like St. Louis here in the U.S. What role did government regulation play in protecting those koala populations in the in the early 1900s? Yeah, so there were campaigns to um, protect koalas and different because uh, different states in Australia had enacted um, animal protection laws, although how effective they were varied. Um, I guess the last state to bring that in was Queensland. So Queens and then then Queensland would periodically have exemptions and allow a koala hunting season for economic reasons, you know, to give people um, a source of income during the Depression era and those sorts of things but it did cause a big public outrage and and the issue that we've always got to be aware of with conservation laws is that um, you can enact the laws but if you don't enforce them they're not very effective and and that's a problem we still face today Um, but to be honest the thing that really made the difference was um, an appeal to the American president Herbert Hoover to um, do something about this fur trade and he actually banned the importation of fur uh, into America and that dried up the trade um, and pretty much put an end to it. So America has played an important role in koala conservation, um, not just through that act but also through funding that comes out of uh, the zoos because um, America has a has a policy that if you're going to keep um, endangered animals in zoos, you have to contribute to in situ conservation funding. Um, so you have to conserve the animal in the location it comes from. So a lot of koala research funds come from that in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really surprising, although I guess given how beloved they are today, maybe not so, that koala protection actually seemed to be sort of at the cutting edge consistently of species protection laws. So you you write that in in 1898, New South Wales listed the koala as a protected species, which was actually two years before the Lacey Act in the U.S., which banned illegal illegal wildlife trafficking, and 11 years before the creation of the Wildlife Preservation Society of Australia. 
so koalas seem to, you know, have have captured the attention, even if the implementation was very much lacking, um, but of conservationists and to really start some of those conservation conversations going. And, and then more recently, there's a really remarkable success story you write about in your book about the revitalization of koala populations following that catastrophic decline in the 20th century, which actually became a model for uh, saving uh, Chevalsky's horse and the American bison and, and many other species. Can you tell us about that story of Kangaroo Island? Yeah, yeah. The, 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 it's, a, it's a really interesting story and, and it's a strange story too because it's not widely recognized in Australia as a conservation success. <laughs> so that's rather ironic. But when you think about it, koalas were, they were declared extinct in the southern state of Victoria and, and in South Australia. Uh, and they were, but there were, a few, there were, you know, very few animals left. There were a couple of small, tiny populations. But a small population of koalas was moved onto an island, French island in Victoria, to protect them probably from bushfires. So it was it was a community thing. Some Somebody did it. We're not quite sure who it was. Um, there's various stories around that, but a local farmer, local conservationist moved them on there to protect them. And that population boomed. So on the island, safe from you know dogs, um, cars, other threats, and from bushfires. Um, they were protected and it happened to be a disease-free population, so it didn't have the diseases that afflict other koala populations. And it soon became apparent that there were too many koalas on the island, so they had to move them onto successive islands. And every time they moved them, the koala populations would boom and they'd have to move them on again. So that population progressively repopulated much of Victoria and the remaining habitat in South Australia as well. And they were put onto Kangaroo Island in South Australia um, as another safety measure. So that was an intentional one. They were established there as a wildlife preserve on Kangaroo Island. Kangaroo Island had had koalas, but probably they went extinct um, seven or 8,000 years ago. So they were native there, but not in recent history. Um, and they again boomed on Kangaroo Island. So Kangaroo Island had one of the biggest and densest population and healthiest populations of koalas in Australia. And so it's a great story of, of the success of re-establishing and rewilding a population. But in Australia, it's not seen as that because of the concerns over the eastern population. The southern populations tend to be seen as genetically lacking in diversity. And they're often excluded from any conversation about koalas. <laughs> so, but I think it is important to include them because the, the other thing is that when the fires, the, the black summer fires burnt through so much of Australia, they burnt on Kangaroo Island as well. And they burnt right through the whole national park where all the koalas were. So that's where the bulk of the deaths of koalas occurred. Um, 40,000 individuals died on the, roughly that we know of on, um, Kangaroo Island. So it, was, it shows that even a population that's put in put in location for their own safety um, and is really really healthy and thriving can be wiped out really quickly with with these sort of catastrophes. So yeah, it, it sort of highlights the risks as well as the successes. And the tragic loss of those forty thousand koalas, which was about two-thirds of all of the, the 60,000 koalas killed during those 2019-2020 fires. You mentioned was particularly troubling because they were disease-free. 
and I haven't known this prior to reading your book, but a, a fascinating and extremely sad section of the book I found was about this epidemic of chlamydia, um, the sexually transmitted disease among koalas and what it's done to their to their quality of life, certainly, and, and to their health and fertility and future in many ways. And also, um, you know, how the remarkable and unique nature of their guts evolved to filter out poison from the eucalyptus leaves that they eat makes it particularly hard to treat them with antibiotics. And I was wondering if you could tell us about, you know, where this disease came from, how widespread it is, and um, and what impact it has on, on koala's daily life. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really complicated question as well. You know, there's long been arguments that chlamydia cl- Chlamydia is, is um, comes in a variety of forms, so it's sometimes tricky to know which particular variety of chlamydia we're talking about. Um, so there's a bit, bit of a debate about whether chlamydia came with the European colonists and whether it came with the sheep, um, because um, sheep are a common vector for chlamydia, or whether it was pre-existing, and that, that debate continues today. Um, we do know that koalas seem to have always suffered from pandemic, you know, epidemics of this this kind. Um, the very uh, some of the very early records report diseased koalas, wipe, you know, being wiped out in particular areas. So, so that they do te- seem to have that kind of slightly boom and bust population cycle in in particular locations. Um, the retrovirus is another factor in that equation. So. The koalas suffer from um, a, a retrovirus that causes koala AIDS, and that has its own problems, and it also exacerbates the symptoms of chlamydia, so it makes the chlamydia very severe. So what we find is that in the populations that, you know, the southern populations, which a lot of them are disease-free, but in the Adelaide Hills, for example, we're seeing a higher incidence of chlamydia in the population, but it doesn't seem to be having the same symptoms. It's been, the, the koalas seem to be managing that, not necessarily having the terrible, you know, life-threatening conditions that they face on the East Coast. So so we don't know whether that's the retrovirus interacting with the chlamydia that's causing that problem or or also it could simply be habitat stress. You know, if you're... If you're Got animals in a very stressed suboptimal habitat, not getting quite enough nutrition, then they will be more prone to disease and suffer from it worse. Retroviruses have always been a part of koala populations as they are in our own um, species, but there seems to be new waves of more vigorous retroviruses sweeping from the north down to the south. So, so that's causing those populations significant problems. And then, of course, as you just mentioned, these diseases are compounded by the impact of myriad other stresses on koala populations, not least of which is, as you mentioned, habitat destruction. Uh, you write about how industrial development for agriculture and, and logging has destroyed much of the forests that once comprised koala's habitat. Uh, in Queensland, you had the shocking statistic that over 2.4 million hectares of forest were cleared or recleared just between 2010 and 2018. What what are the industrial development pressures on koalas' habitat, and, and sort of what is the current state of uh, koalas and the eucalyptus forest on which they depend? 
Mm. Yeah, um, we do have, we, you know, I think like a lot of places that that whole thing about transitioning our economy into a more sustainable format is is a fraught process and there's a lot of quite resistant um, forces at play. Um, so for, forestry is, is one area. Forestry, of course, has a long history of, of conservation and protecting forests, but there's also a sense of a desire to get as much out of the system before it's before it's <laughs> prevented. Um, so we still have native logging, uh, native forest logging in New South Wales and Queensland, um, which is largely stopped in the, in the southern states. It's meant to have, um, and it's not a very economic system either. You know, it's a, it's an industry that's propped up by government subsidies. So there's a lot of pressure to stop it. And move and transition to plantation forests, which are much more um, sustainable and economically beneficial. The trouble with native forest logging is that there's a lot of complex definitions around what's a what's a protected forest, what's not, um, whether it's regrowth or whether it's original forest. And it has a strain. You know, you can you can log a forest and technically leave the forest to recover, but it changes the nature of the forest. And I think on the East Coast there's increasing evidence that what it changes it to is it changes it to a whole heap of trees that aren't edible for koalas and a lot of other species. So it's it's actually making the forest toxic and unpalatable. So it looks like there's trees there, but they're not ones that can support the wildlife. And we also have a lot of pressures on um, our river systems. I think that's one thing that I, I really noticed in my research that we underestimate the importance of river systems and river forests. Um, and the thing with the, the forests along the water lines um, are the ones that, that have the most biodiversity. So they they host the, the biggest variety of species. They're like, you know, we're used to thinking about estuaries on the coast as being the nurseries of the of the sea of the aquatic systems and marine systems and on land i think the river forests are the nurseries um of the of the rest of the area so that's where the animals go to get the really nutritious um food and um that's where they go to breed and that certainly applies to koalas even though koalas are meant to be drought adapted and their very name means does not drink water um, they are actually highly dependent on water supply um, and they typically favour trees that grow in the riverine systems or that, you know, ha- have an association with lots of water. You um, trained as a biologist and studied a number of different animals and um, and written books on, on a range of um, topics related to the natural world. And I guess I'm curious as to why, I mean, I don't think it's hard for anyone to imagine why koalas, given how completely lovable and adorable they clearly are to people all around the world. But I'm curious as to why did you want to invest, you know, years in koalas in particular of all of the, you know, extraordinary wild animals around you there in Australia? What about koalas drew you in and made you want to you know, focus on them for this book? Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I guess koalas are something, you know, we kind of take them for granted a little bit. Um, and I, when I started, I wasn't entirely sure whether there'd be enough material for a book. I thought, well, there's not much to koalas. They're pretty straightforward animals, you know. Um, we'll have to see how we go with what we find. And I had no idea that I was going to find out how 
astonishingly complicated <laughs> and sophisticated they were and, and really interesting animals. So so that was a revelation to me, in fact. And, and I have to say my interest in writing a book about koalas was prompted a lot by the enthusiasm of my publisher in Australia, um, Black Ink. So so they were the ones who said, yeah, we really need a book on koalas, um, which I was very happy to do. Um, but probably they wouldn't have been my first choice as an animal just because, you know, I, I had fallen for the myth that they they weren't all that interesting. They didn't do very much. But um, I, I have learnt to appreciate them a great deal more um, through the course of writing this book. We've talked a little bit about how humans perceive koalas. You have a wonderful chapter in, in your book about the the ways that koalas perceive the world and, and talk about the different senses that they have and you know what it's like to to smell and to taste and to touch as a koala. Can you talk a little bit about how koalas interact with and perceive the world? Yeah, I, I, I really, I've always been fascinated by trying to think about how animals see the, perceive the world. I say see the world because we're primates and we're highly visual, so we tend to interpret everything visually. So it's always about what, what we can see. But, um, you know, we do have other senses, in it, and in other animals, those senses are, are far more important. So, you know, koalas are, like a lot of mammals, use um, chemical communication a lot so smell um and they they scent mark the trees and you'll you notice when you see a koala going up a tree it, it will often sniff the bottom of the tree um and that's to tell it you know what other koalas have been there how frequently they've been visiting whether they're still there how recent they are um what what gender they are, whether they're male or female, whether they're in breeding condition or not, whether they're a koala they want to avoid or a koala they want to approach. Um, so so there's a lot of that kind of communication going on that we we also use chemical communication. We're not particularly aware of it, so um, and it's not that, that direct. Um, so it was, yeah, I was just really interested in that and, and I actually didn't find a lot of information about that out there, so I, so I had to draw on um, um, a broader knowledge of sensory perception to, to do that section, like what they can actually see, how far can they see. Um, you know, people will think that koala vision isn't very important, but they've got quite unusual rounded eyes um, that are very particular, and, and they have a the, – their pupil is really interesting because it goes up and down instead of side, sideways, horizontally, the way um, ground-dwelling herbivores typically have. Um, and that's clearly, you know, presumably that's because they live in a tree and everything is up and down for them, so the, their focal range needs to be in that direction, not not horizontally, the way animals that live on the ground do. Yeah, it's very interesting. Another um, interesting point that you make in the book is about how koalas have convergently evolved um, along with us fingerprints um, for holding and you know feeling out the leaves and, and their environment as well, which which I didn't know and was was fascinating. Um, you also talk quite a bit about how extraordinary, and we've talked about this a little bit, but I hope, I'm hoping you'll go into more depth about how truly extraordinary the koala's guts are. And you mentioned that, you know, koalas are evolved not just to eat specifically eucalyptus leaves, but specific types of eucalyptus leaves. Um, and that this can pose quite a challenge to rescuers and rehabilitators when they need to move koalas 
to a new location. And so they've developed some um, remarkable methods for trying to uh, help the koalas adapt. And I was wondering if you tell us about how they go about that um, and the inoculations of the, the, or the poo smoothies, quote unquote, as you say at one point in the book that these koalas receive and, and why that's important. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is a really interesting area. It actually took me a long time to get my head around how the koala's, um, you know, success rests on the, the gut biome um, that they have. So, the you know, it's, it, um, the digestion of cellulose and lignin in a lot of plant matter is, is really difficult for mammals. We don't, we don't have the right systems to digest that material so we have to have you know symbiotic bacteria in our guts to help digest that so most herbivores have that and they also have extremely complicated um, digestive systems as we know from from other animals you know with four stomachs and all those sorts of things um, koalas have a slightly different system so they have they have a very long cecum which is um, in in us we only have the tiny little nub of the cecum left which we call the appendix and it's about the size of our thumb um, in koalas it's a you know two meter long structure so it's a really large thing that is filled with a microbial soup that they use to digest so they slowly simmer it's it's actually the sort of liquid from the leaves that they put into that that section and it, and it just slowly digests in there the, the back bacteria and presumably those bacteria are individually tailored to the particular eucalypt species that the the animal is is having to consume the leaves that they're eating um, in nature koalas um, don't you know they don't have that naturally they have to get it from their mother so the way they do this is a very unappealing kind of feature of koala biology when they're weaning their young before they before they weaned the young can't don't eat the leaves they sort of play around with them but they don't really eat them but at some point the mother actually um, evacuates the cecum so um, this this green sloppy <laughs> <laughs> mess emerges and the young koala eats that and um, they really, really are very enthusiastic about eating that. Um, and that actually gives them all the microbes that they need. So so it's a fairly unattractive process um, in nature, but a very vital one for koalas to survive um, and that allows them to digest their food and move on to an adult diet. So some of the zookeepers um, at Cleland Zoo um, have used that process as well to inoculate koalas. This is not an uncommon thing when we look after animals in the zoo and they're uh, the herbivores and the young animals will often get diarrhea or they look like they're not, not digesting their food properly. It's quite common to get a pellet from a healthy animal, crush it up, put it in their milk and feed it to them and that re-inoculates their stomach with healthy microbes um, and that, that often is very beneficial. So this is a slightly more advanced process of doing that, of, of trying to make sure that the koalas that are not thriving at a zoo might have the right microbes and, and vets found that beneficial. So now they have also moved on to giving it to healthy animals when they first arrive at the zoo because we don't necessarily know where they've come from and what trees they're favouring and we have to make sure they're able to properly digest the trees that they're getting, the variety of trees they're getting at the zoo. 
they give them a a, a smoothie, a poo smoothie, mm-hmm. <laughs> which which the koalas are not all that keen on, but um, they 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 take their medicine rel- with relatively good grace, um, and it and the and they feel that this is a very successful way of adapting them to the new diet, and it seems to to you know make sure that they don't decline. It's a common feature in de- in koalas to go into captivity, and they can be eating but just not thriving. And sometimes they can just die, you know, a month or two after they've been in the in captivity, and and they're so they're, they're quite touchy animals to to keep um, for that reason. So so this is a new thing that still has to have a lot of science done around it to show how and why and if it really works. But um, it certainly seems to be successful in a practical context of animal husbandry. One of the most distinctive and maybe surprising features of koala behavior is the the noises that they make, which are these sort of guttural bellows that you describe really in, in detail in your book, which just for whatever human bias, I was not expecting koalas to to make that noise, but it's really fascinating and, and key to their mating, as you mentioned earlier. Can you Tell us a little bit about you know what it, what the social lives of koalas are like, how they sort of organize themselves in these these tree territories, um, and and how they use sound to communicate. Yeah, so you know koalas are typically solitary animals. Um, they they generally found fairly widely dispersed through a forest. So we know that you know one koala needs a forest the size of a sports field to support it. And and that's as a sort of a minimum. Well, that's a it's sort of an average. Um, when they're in really arid forests, they will need a much larger area, so that they will actually need an area of forest the size of Central Park in New York. So it's a really really dispersed population, which is why they're so hard to find and see. But that also creates problems for them when they want to breed because they've got to get together to to, um, to to continue the next generation. So bellowing is a really good way of communicating across long distances, um, and there is plenty of evidence that that koalas will move towards and away from bellowing other bellowing koalas, depending upon whether they're interested or not. And females occasionally bellow as well, so there's evidence that they attract mates the same way, but it's definitely the males that do the most bellowing, and that enables them to find each other and mate. Mating is really interesting in koalas. There's a lot of bellowing going on there too. The males generally come into breeding season a month earlier than the females, presumably give them time to find them. So when they arrive, the females are probably often not that interested. (laughs) And so we have a lot of circumstances where you have males very enthusiastically pursuing the females through the trees and the females very vocally rejecting their advances in no uncertain terms. So there's a lot of squealing and screaming and yelling and carry on going on in the trees. It's it's really noisy and sounds a bit terrible. But um, generally speaking, the, the females very fussy about the males they mate with and they they generally manage to keep them at a distance until they're ready um and in actual fact the 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 noisy approaches of the males does bring the females into ovulation so they have induced ovulation because you know there's no point in wasting time ovulating if you've got no males around so they wait until they're in the area and then they then they get ready to breed 
As, so you described the you know koalas' social lives with each other, and um, you talk about in the book, which I think it, you know many people have have seen firsthand in the coverage of koalas in the news that koalas have become famous um, in the media for their interactions with people, particularly recently during the fires when you know, we'd see these videos, as you know, as we mentioned at the beginning, of koalas drinking from water bottles and Good Samaritans saving koalas and you know, bringing them into their homes and trying to rescue them during this you know, truly devastating time. Um, you know, what do you take away from these sort of viral videos and viral stories about koalas? And what are koalas' interactions like today and in, you know, certainly in times of, you know, crisis like that, but also in urban areas distinct from the, from the fire periods? Mm, yeah, I, I guess the, the, the viral videos, you know, they, they can be a little bit misleading. They're very appealing, but, but they are often not representing mm. normal koala behavior. So certainly if you come across a koala in the wild, the most common thing is for that koala to move away from you. <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't usually seek out your company. But the interesting thing about koalas is that when they're sitting in a tree, they're often quite comfortable with just watching you. They feel, they feel relatively safe in the, in the tree. But, but if you do what, even if you see them in the tree and you watch them carefully, I, I have noticed that they will often move around the other side of the tree. So they'll just always be trying to keep the tree between you and them. So they're, they're not overtly running away from you, but they're definitely not keen on letting you get too close. Um, but occasionally koalas will come into close contact. They'll come through gardens and they will approach humans. And very often that is a sign that there's something wrong. Um, it, it can mean that the koala is in danger. So, so during fires when they're burnt uh, and they're thirsty, they'll certainly approach people for water. Um, they'll certainly come into gardens and drink out of swimming pools and out of ponds. Um, a lot of koalas that have kidney disease will, will come and do that because they're extremely thirsty. So... You know, the first question you need to ask if you have a koala in an unusual place like that is, is it healthy and should I get someone to come and have a look and see if it's okay? And there's many of those videos are very cute and adorable, but often those koalas you can see are actually ill. Um, and, and that's that's worrying because I don't think people realize that. They think they're just being nice and friendly, but they're actually very sick. Um, so, so yeah, if you see them in unusual places, it's, it's good to be a little bit concerned and make sure somebody just comes and checks and sees if they're okay. Yeah. Many of those, those, those fire videos and the, the videos of the koalas drinking out of the biker's water bottle and, you know, coming in to, to find respite just among, among humans who of course were the, the initial cause of, of their, their problems, um, were just so heart wrenching. There was a, a more lighthearted video that you mentioned in your book, which is the koala hopping on the canoe of the students as the students are sort of moving the, the canoe across the river, which you mentioned sort of shows potentially uh, advanced planning on the part of koala, the koala hitching a ride and sort of thinking ahead, mm -hmm. if I get in this canoe, it'll it'll ferry me across the river. So I, I, I very much enjoyed that one. That was a bit more um, of a period of levity. But yeah, these, yeah. these videos are, are so devastating. Yeah, yeah, they they are, and I guess that that actually that the video with the with the canoe is a really good example of good human behaviour too. You know, because they were really letting the koala make the choices there. They weren't trying to grab it. They weren't trying to chase it into anywhere. They just put the canoe at the base of the tree. The koala made the choice to come down and get in the canoe, um, and then they let the koala 
make its own decision to get out of the canoe and that's what it's did and and i find that you know that that's a really good way of approaching animals you know to just unfortunately koalas do seem to be pretty sensible with those sorts of things if you've ever tried to get a cat out of a tree you know that not all animals are very keen on being rescued even when mm-hmm. it's for their own good um so um yeah yeah koalas do seem to be quite perceptive about how how things move and to predict where things are going which if you think about their life in a tree is quite important for them to not to be able to predict what another animal is doing when it's coming up a tree and whether it's going to be able to get to them or not um depending on what route it's taking so so i do think they have more complex cognition than we give them credit for Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier um that often certain populations of koalas in Australia are almost forgotten about now or dismissed because they have less genetic diversity or, you know, for other reasons. Could you sort of explain what the, how the population distribution is currently and what the regional variation and differences are in, in, in the koalas um, as they exist today? Sure. So, so we generally have um, the, the southern population is um, – you know that they are slightly less genetically diverse, um, and they tend to they tend to be bigger animals. Um, they tend to be they have thicker pelts, so they're, they're you know better adapted for coping with the cold winter. Um, the, the genetic diversity doesn't seem to be causing them any problems, obviously, because they're they're breeding highly successfully. So so that's not an issue for them at the moment. Um, the northern populations are more diverse, and there's a lot more variety in those genetic variety in those populations, and they tend to be smaller animals with thinner pelts, so they're better adapted to the to the more tropical areas where the it's hot all year round, um, and they they need to they need to lose their body heat uh, more effectively. All koalas suffer from the heat, though. They're not, they're not keen on being hot. Um, as you'll see from the videos of them sort of sprawled out in the trees in a very relaxed position, um, trying to lo- lose some heat and, and not use up any energy. Um, but, the, yeah, the distribution of koalas is certainly declining along the East Coast, and, and that's partly possibly driven by changing climate, increasing droughts. Koalas move out of areas that are lacking in water, um, so they tend to be moving south and towards the coast. But, of course, that's pushing them into Australia's most populated area, so around the major cities on the east coast in Brisbane, south coast hinterland and, and Sydney uh, and those areas. So, so there's really a bit of a... A, a crisis happening there between koala ha- prime koala habitat and human preferred human habitat. Um, so yeah, we've we've got a lot of work to do in learning how to balance those competing demands. There was such a concentrated period of attention on the koala around the world uh, toward the end of 2019 as those devastating fires were happening across Australia, and that really brought the koala and it's the risk to the, the species front and center. And the koala was, of course, um, then listed as endangered in February 2022. But then, she, you know, shortly after uh, this this period of close attention, the pandemic hit, people's attentions were sort of uh, drawn elsewhere. Did that urgency, that uh, moment of urgency in 2019 persist beyond that particular news cycle? How did that sort of change the conversation in Australia around koala conservation? And where is the conversation now? 
Mm. Yeah, I, I, I believe and I'm, I'm really hopeful that um, issues of environmental conservation are finally coming to the fore. I, I do feel this has been a long time coming. You know, I've obviously spent my whole career thinking that conservation and environmental management is the most important question we face. And, you know, 30 years on, we don't seem to have made any progress. In fact, we seem to be going backwards. But the bushfires, the the Black Summer bushfires was the first time in Australian bushfire history that I can recall and that I have studied because I have written on Australia's bushfire history before. Um, And this was the first time that wildlife concerns over wildlife and environmental impact were at the fore. Um, I have never, never come across the impact of wildlife being so prominent after a bushfire. Normally, the, the, all the focus is on human impact, on the, on the damage to humans. The, the issues of wildlife are there, but they're not at the fore the way they were in this one. So, so I really do feel that has been a change and we have seen, um, a much greater level of public debate around conservation. So, so I am hopeful that the, that the system, that things are changing and that there is a, a much broader public awareness of the risks we face and how serious those risks are. Um, We've been warned about this for decades, but um, I think people are paying attention now. Well, Dr. Danielle Claude, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you too to Ryan McAvoy, the Yale Broadcast Studio, and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics, and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, write us a review, and check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org. Thanks for listening.